The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, I'm speaking with media and tech lawyer, Bob Ambrosi, creator of the Law Sites blog and one of the most respected names in the legal technology world. Bob, I often refer to you as the Walt Mossberg of legal, which I, I hope you take as, as the highest praise. Uh, it is, it's great to see you and welcome to the show. It, it's great. It's very high praise, although a lot of people don't even know who Walt Mossberg is anymore. Uh, so, so I don't know if that just means you're also calling me old, but that's okay. I, I'll tell well, you. maybe that makes me old too. But uh, uh, for those that don't know, Walt Mossberg was the Wall Street Journal's tech editor and, you know, kind of the, the journalist of record for uh, the tech industry for, for years yeah. and years. And uh, I, I think you certainly play that role in, in legal tech, Bob. Uh, and it's an honor to have you on the show. Uh, and, and to start our, our interview off, it's, and it's a, a pleasure to have you on this side of the microphone or on that side of the microphone for a change. We've done, you know, many interviews uh, over the years, but uh, it's yeah, great to I'm be interviewing you. I'm not so comfortable you. on this side of the microphone. I'd rather be asking the questions than answering the questions. It's, it's a lot easier, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've been enjoying it. Uh, so, Bob, first and foremost, tell me, how are you and your family doing? We're doing well. Um, yeah, I, you know, um, it, it's kind of funny because in, in a lot of ways, this is business as usual for us. Uh, I mean, you know, you've, you've met, I know you've met one of my sons. I mean, my sons yep. are both grown and out of the house, so I don't have little kids scrambling into my office right. while I'm working. Uh, and uh, so it's just my wife and I, and we both pretty much work out of the house or in an I'm actually in my office right now, which is like three miles from my house. So it's, you know, it's not a big disruption of, of my routine. We're doing well. That's great. And, and tell us a little bit more about where you're, you're situated and, and how COVID-19 has been impacting your, your neck of the woods. Well, I am in Massachusetts. I, I live north of Boston in a little town called Rockport, which is a little seaport town. Uh, Massachusetts has two capes. Everybody knows Cape Cod, or a lot of people know Cape Cod, but we live on Cape Ann, which is a little a cape north of Boston and it's where most people know it for the perfect storm, the movie, the perfect storm, the right. perfect storm uh, all took place here. And I'm really only about 10 to 15 miles from uh, Jared Korea, who I know was on your show uh, just recently. Yeah, that's right. I think his episode aired on, on Monday. Yeah. Um, and, and what has the, and it, uh, I, I've never been to Rockport, but it looks like an idyllic little town. I, your photos on, on Instagram are, are, uh, always beautiful. And, uh, maybe this is a different kind of perfect storm. What, what has the COVID-19 yeah. crisis done to, to Rockport? You know, it, it hasn't hit Rockport too badly it's it's hit Massachusetts badly. I mean, Massachusetts is, is one of the hardest hit spots in, in the country, in the Boston area in particular. Um, I don't know the numbers right now, but, uh, you know, we're, we're still continuing to see a surge of cases here. Uh, we, it, it, we're not, we're not past, uh, past that yet. Um, uh, but this, the little town that I'm in is not, is really not too bad. I, we've had a few, uh, a few cases. It's funny. I, I, I'm joking. I wasn't joking necessarily, but uh, you know, was, 
don't know if you are old enough to know who Tom Rush is, who's a, a, a folk singer from the 60s and 70s. Oh, yeah, uh, I've, I've heard of, of Tom. A, yeah. a well-known, well-known guy back, uh, back in the day, and he still performs, he still tours. Uh, and because of this crisis, I learned that he lives in my town because I was reading a, an article in a newspaper about the fact that Tom Rush came down with COVID-19. Uh, and it said he's recuperating at home in his uh, house in Rockport, Massachusetts. So Tom Rush is apparently my neighbor. Well, you can keep an eye out for a celebrity when this is all all behind right, us. Right, that's about uh, as and, as we get here. But that's <laughs> and, and what has this this crisis left on your mind primarily, Bob? What do you find yourself thinking about the most? Oh God, you know what? What are we all thinking about? I mean, I I, I think so much about just. Of course, the the safety of my family, as I just mentioned, my two kids don't live with me, and in some ways that makes it more stressful. You know, when your kids are, you know, even when your kids are adult, you still you still worry about them, and uh, so I, I think a lot about my kids. One of my sons is in San Francisco, which has also been a hot spot. The other yes. one is in Washington D.C., which is another hot spot, uh, and so I think about them. But I, I, you know, I think about all the people who are being impacted by this in, in so many ways. Uh, and it's, it's a difficult time. And I, I, I tend to worry about a lot of people uh, and think about them a lot. And that, you know, that occupies my mind. But, but you know, it's also funny, I think, in, that you, it's, you know, people keep using the phrase new normal, and I, I hate that phrase, but you do start to fall, fall into a, a routine of, of life as usual. You know, you get up and you drink coffee and you check your email and whatever. And uh, as weird as everything is, you fall into a, a routine of, of normalcy that uh, sometimes I have to stop and, and say, well, wait a minute, this, this isn't normal at all. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I've, I found myself falling into exactly that, that new normal and just once in a while stepping back from it and realizing this is really strange, <laughs> but yeah. it's not a persistent feeling anymore. It's one that you kind of occasionally uh, uh, are aware of through the yeah. through the day to day. Bob, you've got a unique vantage point uh, in terms of your ability to observe the, the macro trends in the industry as well as the specific impacts on on legal tech. What have you seen the the biggest impacts of the coronavirus crisis to to be to this point? I think the biggest impact um, is that uh, suddenly technology is uh, something that we're all uh, recognizing the value of. I, 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 um, I thought, I don't know if you know the UK writer, uh, Joanna Goodman, but I, I thought yep. she really put it well in, in an article that she wrote this week. I mean, we, we've all been talking about the fact that, uh, and I've heard you say this as well, that, you know, the future has suddenly arrived. I mean, right. we, we've all been preparing for a future that we've envisioned to be five or 10 or 15 or 20 years down the road. And I think a lot of law firms have thought about their adoption of technology uh, as something that, yeah, we're going to get to that at some point. We're going to we're we're moving in that direction, but there's no big hurry about it. Um, and and this has brought the future here very suddenly. This has forced us to be thinking about how we use technology very suddenly. But even more than that, and the point that Joanna made that I thought was really uh, insightful is that there had there a lot of lawyers still harbor this mindset around technology that technology is a threat to them that. 
that technology is something to be feared. They have this vision of artificial intelligence taking away their work, uh, of efficiencies driven by technology cutting into their billable hours and their business model. Um, you know, that's, that's not universal, of course, but there are a lot of attorneys who still uh, have harbored that kind of fear, that kind yeah. of, uh, you know, uh, just uh, resistance to it. This is something to stave off as long as you can. To stave off. And so I, I think probably the most dramatic change uh, in the short term here is that suddenly the attorneys who saw technology as something to fear now understand it to be a lifeline, now understand it to be something that is going to keep their practices afloat, enable mm -hmm. them to continue to serve their clients, enable them to continue to stay in business and make a living. I, you know, I, I've just been amazed. I was on a Zoom conference call yesterday with a, a group of lawyers, uh, about uh, 30 lawyers for a, a meeting. Um, and for a number of the lawyers on the call, they had never been on a Zoom call before. Right. I, I mean, you know, what cave have you been living in that you've never been on a Zoom call? But that, that really says something about the kind of the state of technology. And, you know, you and I live in this world where we talk a lot about how technology can be used to drive efficiency and, and how innovation can change legal practice. But a lot of rank and file lawyers just haven't really had to give that any serious thought until this moment. So yeah. I, I think that's really significant. I, I, I think you know, it's it's not just that the future ha has arrived, but it, it's that lawyers' eyes are are being forced open in a way that they never have been before. And I I think you've made a really important point around this perception that technology was always here, threatening to automate my job away, um, and, and that it was all about productivity. And I, I think uh, I, I know we both interviewed Richard Susskind over the last. Uh, week or so yeah, you're and, and one of these... all my guests jack I gotta, I gotta stop <laughs> um you you have been a, a step ahead of me um for sure bob as as always but uh when we when richard comments about the role technology plays he talked about you know productivity and and automation as as some table stakes but really what it opens up is the opportunity to deliver legal services in ways they've never been delivered before. And that truly feels like the moment that's upon us with, right. with the COVID-19 crisis is uh, not just an opportunity, but a necessity to deliver legal services in a way they've, they've never been delivered before. And right. it feels like that's the catalyst that is finally nudging some, some lawyers over the precipice to, to actually evaluate technology. Right. And, and the realization that there is no going back uh, and that even if there were to be a going back, we have no idea when that might be. I mean, even if you, if you want to believe you're going to be able to go back to the way things were, which I'm sure you and I agree is not the case, but even if you want to harbor that belief, we have no idea when that day might come. I mean, you know, when is it going to be normal again to have go into your office every day and have people coming into your office and working there? Right. So if you, if you don't adjust, uh, it, you know, as you say, it's a necessity. It's something you need to do now if you want to continue to practice law and make a living at it and serve your clients. And, and how are you seeing, what, what do you think, you, you mentioned the fact that you, you don't like the, the term new normal, but I'll, I'll, I'll use it because it's the best I've got. But when we think about the new normal, that is whatever we emerge as, uh, you know, an industry and a profession, 
at the end of this, this pandemic, do you believe there will be lasting change and, and lasting impacts with the technology adoption and even the maybe the the social and the people norms that have changed? We, we're seeing distributed work, we're seeing work from home, we're seeing uh, law firms run in a way that that many law firms would have thought to be impossible just a, a month ago, realizing, well, maybe people can work from home, maybe people can get work done, uh, you know, in an unstructured way. Uh, maybe we can trust people in a way that we thought we, we weren't able to. Um, there will be probably many realizations that the industry as a collective come to over the coming months and, and right. maybe years as, as this, this kind of plays out. What do you think the lasting impacts will be when the pendulum starts swinging back to whatever the, the new normal might be? Yeah, I think there are going to be a lot of permanent changes. I, I think the, the bricks and mortar uh, law office will never be the same again. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think uh, for larger firms, they're going to be looking very seriously at, at, the, at the footprint they occupy in physical space and cutting that back uh, uh, seriously, severely. Um, you know, I was listening to another podcast. I was listening to Greg Lambert, who's doing a little daily podcast now uh, called In Seclusion. And uh, and Greg uh, mentioned on one of his shows that uh, uh, he does, he does, uh, he's a knowledge management, uh, uh, head of knowledge management at right. his firm. And he, he mentioned uh, that a number of the lawyers at his firm have already told him, uh, we kind of like this way of working. Right. And we don't want to go back to the way we were working before. Uh, and, and not only that, but I've, I've heard from the client side as well that I'm getting just as good, if not better, service from my law firm. Um, they're more responsive and they're doing it without the need for a, a million dollar a year lease in downtown San Francisco or New York. Uh, when we're on the other side of this, I want this to be the the new normal. I think it's a really interesting dynamic that we're seeing, you know, the feedback both from the the lawyers and, and the clients that this is actually a completely workable way. And, and it's maybe a lot more convenient to jump on a Zoom call than it is for me to drive downtown just to be bedazzled by your your fancy uh, your fancy law office with a marble right. marble lobby and all of that. Right. Right. Yeah. No. I, I think ultimately that's going to be the biggest driver of the permanence of of the changes that we're seeing now is going to be the client because the clients are going to realize that uh, more than they ever have before that uh, lawyers can represent them, handle their matters in a much more efficient way. Uh, and do it uh, in ways that's much more convenient for them um, and uh, much more streamlined. Uh, and it's not the way it used to be done. It's, it's a totally different way. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been living in this online world for a long time now, but a lot of people haven't been. And now that once you discover it, you realize it really is a much more efficient uh, way to get things done. I mean, I've had more face-to-face -face contact with people over the last couple of weeks than right. I had over the last couple of months. Yeah. Um, and, and that works very well for lawyer-client lawyer relationships. And it's, it's, it's so much more efficient. You can have a 15-minute meeting when it makes sense to have a 15-minute meeting, right. whereas I think if you travel to visit somebody, there's almost an obligation that this is going to be an hour-long meeting. And it, it just, it, I agree with you, it, it really creates a, a bit of a, um, a different paradigm for how you meet with people.
Yeah, I would say one other one other thing that, and, and I know you just had Richard Susskind on, on the show, and, and he's he, he, you know, he's the expert, he's the leading thinker on this. But I, I do think the courts, in some ways, are going to be more profoundly affected by this than than any other segment uh, of the legal profession, because right. partly because the courts were the farthest behind in in ad- adopting innovations and, and adopting the use of technology and rethinking how they deliver their services. Uh, you know, we, we can't repeat enough uh, Richard's uh, phrase that, that uh, you know, our, our courts is a service or a place. And, and I think this has made us really understand that they are a service. That's what they are. They're not a place. There, there's a role for that place. Um, but, uh, you know, there was a, I, I was at a, I, I sat in on a, a press briefing earlier this week, or not a press briefing, it was just a, a briefing from the Legal Services uh, Corporation conducted mm-hmm. on kind of the, the state of uh, uh, its attempts to serve low-income people around the country. And, and they had uh, a number of guest speakers, including a, a, a Supreme Court justice, uh, Michigan Supreme Court justice that Molly McDonough quoted in an article she wrote on Above the Law this week. But the justice, the justice said, I wrote down this quote because it's so good. She said, this crisis might not have been the disruption we wanted, but it's the disruption we needed. So that's a, a that, Supreme Court justice saying that. And, and yeah. that's really true. That's a, a really effective frame. And I, I think Richard's comment around the courts not being a, a place, but instead being a service is, is a good way of thinking about everything in the legal system. You know, and again, your sure. ability to deliver legal sure. services isn't necessarily... Out of, a, out of an office, a bricks and mortar office in the, the traditional sense. Yeah. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm curious, Bob, do you have a perspective on some trends you see happening in the industry, you know, either on the lawyer side or on the legal tech side that is maybe something that isn't being talked about as much that you see as a, a bit of an emerging trend or, or something that's happening a bit below the waterline that, that we should be aware of and, and discuss? I think um, something that's be below the waterline um, is the innovation, or the sort of the pockets of innovation, I think, that are happening within the legal industry. Um, again, I think that when we talk about innovation, when we talk about technology adoption, we tend to think in a sort of a big picture way about it. We, mm-hmm. You know, we talk about the courts, we talk about the need to fundamentally uh, uh, reconfigure how the courts operate. And, and uh, Richard's book has, has some very big thoughts about, about how that can be done. And there's a lot of talk about that. Um, but there are changes being made all over the place that we just don't hear about or, or innovations being made all over the place. I, I interviewed a, a, a judge this week for my podcast. It'll, it'll be up on Monday for my Law Next podcast. A, a judge uh, called, named Scott Schlegel down in Louisiana who uh, was kind of doing some innovative and cool things with technology before all this happened. Uh, but um, all of this has accelerated his need to be able to, he serves, he serves, he runs a drug court uh, primarily. So uh, he has a lot of uh, a population of, of uh, uh, that he serves that are, are people who are, you know, in, in danger, could be in real danger if they lose contact with the system as a result of this crisis. So he's developed a number of ways of conducting hearings speedily, of staying in touch with them. He worked with uh, the law droid people to develop a bot so that he can keep in touch with the probationers. 
Oh, very uh, cool. Work with uh, Dorna Moini at uh, Documate to develop uh, some forms that they that need to be done so they can easily kind of enter a guilty plea or something like that and get released from jail. Uh, and, and what's really cool about the way he's doing all this is he's doing it all with just totally off the shelf, readily available software. He's not like putting out RFPs and some right. waiting for 20 different companies to come in and make outrageous uh, bids on, on this stuff. He's, you know, he's just using um, Slack and, and Zoom and, and uh, Calendly to schedule court hearings. Right. So it's really cool the way he's doing this. Yeah, and I, I think it's a, an important point where you can start building really innovative and really high impact solutions without issuing an RFP and doing a ground up build or, or something along those lines with tools yeah. like, like Zapier and, and other right. tools that allow you to weave together these different technologies. You can create what is essentially a bespoke solution out of off the shelf components. Yeah, yeah. his position is I can get any cord online for $500. <laughs> that um, that's an attractive tagline to, I'm sure to a lot of right. courts right now. <laughs> uh, and, and Bob, what are you seeing on the legal technology front? You know, as I mentioned at the start of the podcast, you're, you're rightly and widely regarded as the reporter of record around legal tech. You've been covering legal tech for as long as I've been in, in legal tech. Uh, you wrote actually the first blog post about Clio way back in 2000 and 2008. Um, and you have just a, a really valuable vantage point in terms of what's going across the entire industry. How do you see legal tech companies responding to this, to this crisis? And, and how do you see them you know, almost collaborating, cooperating with their, their customers to, to, to get through this crisis together in some sense? Well, you know, I, I've been really, um, thrilled to see the way legal tech companies have responded to this by recognizing uh, that there are going to be a lot of uh, legal professionals who are suddenly put into a position of having to learn how to do things in ways they haven't done them before, most, most particularly working from home and everything that entails. And so, you know, Dozens and dozens of, of legal tech companies have stepped up to the plate and extended offers uh, ranging from free access to their services to uh, free training and mentorship to uh, uh, compiling all sorts of resources to, you know, to, to make it easy for, uh, for uh, lawyers to legal professionals to learn how to do this. Uh, I've got a, a page on my blog where I've been kind of compiling all of these free or, or low price uh, discounted offers that tech companies are offering. Uh, you know, Clio was, was uh, first one of the first out of the gate to do that. And uh, I'm sure anybody listening to this podcast is well aware of the fact that you, you guys uh, made a major commitment uh, of a uh, million dollars to a disaster relief fund that uh, is funding exactly those kinds of programs, training and, and uh, access to technology and, uh, and, uh, and this kind of stuff as well. And you, uh, I want to point out as well, you, you have a resource tracking all of these offers on, on your blog, right. Bob. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and where people can, can dig in? You're tracking, I, I think, dozens of yeah. offers at this point. Uh, Lawsitesblog.com slash coronavirus hyphen resources. Excellent. Excellent. Um, it's a great resource, Bob, and, and thank you for, for maintaining it. And 
I'm curious when you when you think about this crisis and how you think about the the state of the legal profession as we exit it, Bob. I'm wondering what you see as being the same and what is different when you compare it to previous recession, recessions and downturns that we've been in in the past. So you, you've been through the, the dot-com bust, you've been through the 2008-2009 recession, uh, which is actually a, a period we uh, founded Clio. So uh, I, I know what a downturn looks like and there's a lot of tech founders and legal tech founders that uh, have only seen kind of the the boom times that we've been in for the last 11 years or so. And I'm, I'm curious what your perspective is on what feels the same about previous downturns and what do you think is, is maybe structurally different? Well, you know, I think what's structurally different, I mean, what's, what's structurally different in terms of the legal technology sector is that the legal technology sector is a much more expansive sector right now than it was the last time we went through right. a downturn like this. Uh, there is a lot more competition. There are a lot more companies in the space. So, you know, I do think that this might be uh, the, the result of this on the legal technology sector is that we're going to see some, some corrections going on in, in the market. Um, uh, we're, there are going to be some companies that are going to, that are going to shut down because of this. Um, and there are others that are going to be, uh, that are really going to find their place in their niche uh, more, more so than they ever have before. Um, you know, I, I, so I, I think that's the biggest, the biggest difference. I, I think the other, um, it's not a, it's not a, a tech issue so much, but what, what I, what I think the similarity is what I, what I most worry about is the impact of this on, you know, that, that, that justice gap that, that mm -hmm. we all talk about, you talk about it, uh, you talked about it in your book. Uh, we, we all are concerned about it, but, uh, what happened after the last recession was that there was a, a serious decline in funding for legal services to serve the poor, at least in the United States. Yeah. Uh, and part of that was driven by the fact that um, uh, so much of legal services in the United States is funded through IALTA funds. Uh, and when there is a recession and, and the market goes down, then uh, IALTA uh, suffers mightily and there's less money to fund legal services. Uh, and uh, over the last few years, IOLTA has finally been recovering and there has been more money going to fund legal services. And, you know, I really worry that's going to change. I think, I think let, we're, next year we're going to see a significant drop in, in IOLTA funds and, and that's going to mean a significant fund drop in funding for legal services. And, and, and that, the, the, the tech side of that is that a lot of these legal services agencies have not been uh, well equipped with tech to begin with. Right. Uh, right now we're in a situation where, um, you know, legal services agencies are having to make the same adjustments we all are of, of working from home and of serving clients who are working from home, if they're working at all. Um, and and they, don't, they don't have the technology to do that. They're not as well prepared as, as a larger law firm is, say, or, or a lot of law firms would be. Um, so I, I, I'm, you know, I think there's going to be a, a real need for the technology community to respond in ways that help the legal services community uh, uh, fill what's going to be, I, I think, a real gap over the next couple of years. 
Yeah, and a funding shortfall coupled with what will no doubt be an unprecedented level of demand for those legal services. Yeah, demand and a population that is really um, um, at a at a real disadvantage in in this situation where they're you know they rely if they rely on public transportation they can't rely on public transportation to right. get to see a lawyer or whatever if if they live in a rural area uh, and if they're not tech savvy or if their lawyers don't have access to video conferencing or whatever not that it would be hard to get access but. Uh, again, for a lot of uh, lawyers and legal providers, they're just getting up to speed on how to do that, how to serve clients in that way. So I'd be concerned about that. Yeah, um, I think you're right. And I I share your concern on on the technology front. And it's actually one of the areas we at CLEAR are starting to turn our attention to as well in terms of how can we, how can we support that, uh, that urgent need happening on the the pro bono side, we actually recently collaborated with the New York State Bar Association along with Paladin uh, in terms of equipping the Bar Association to respond to the uh, what will be an unbelievable amount of demand around unemployment insurance and, and legal representation around, uh, around that. And, and I do hope that legal technology providers can have a huge impact in helping bridge that, bridge that divide. And when we when we pop up a level and, and think about the um, the overall access to justice gap above and beyond you know, pro bono related access, do you think we'll look back on this pandemic as as the catalyzing factor that helped increase access to justice? Do you, do you think we'll see the lasting change be that we see a structural change in the uh, the cost structure for the average law firm that we see maybe some of these expensive leases and, and other aspects of the overhead of running a law firm start to go away and, and make legal services more affordable to the, to the average consumer. That's, that's the silver lining here. It really is. And, and it's true of law firms. I mean, law firms now, now that law firms have learned in a matter of weeks, how to deliver their services virtually, uh, they are going to be forever enabled to deliver their services virtually. Uh, and, and now that courts are learning to uh, deliver their services, to deliver justice, to hold hearings in a virtual way, there's no going back from that. So, so the, absolutely, the, the, the long-term impact, even the short-term impact of this uh, is going to be uh, increased access to justice. Um, you know, again, there is always, uh, there all, I, I keep coming back, it, there's, there's, you know, it depends where you're talking. Uh, and there, among the lower income people, there is, there, there is still the, 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 the concern, the issue of the digital divide. I mean, if you don't have reliable access to broadband, uh, if, if you're not savvy in how to use the internet, the fact that your lawyer now suddenly figured it out doesn't do you a lot of good. Right. So, so there's a societal issue there that needs to be addressed in terms of serving lower income people. But Overall, this is definitely going to make a, a major change, I think, in, in, in uh, closing that justice gap, access to justice gap. Bob, you've recently written a, a bit of a, a retrospective on the, the last decade in legal and legal tech. And I, I don't think this pandemic is necessarily what anyone had in mind for how we'd be kicking off the, the 2020s and, and the next decade of, of legal innovation. Uh, I'm curious, what are some of your perspectives on what this this new decade might look like? And maybe one where we actually see 
20 years of innovation compressed into 10 or, or, or even less. It's, it's, it's going to be, I think, a really exciting decade for, for all of us. What are some of your bold predictions about what the next 10 years might look like? Well, a lot of what I've already said, uh, I, again, I think the boldest, and, and I'm sure uh, I haven't had a chance to listen to your interview with, with uh, Siskin yet, but, but I'm sure Siskin said this much better than I could. But I, I think the boldest is that the court systems are going to fundamentally change uh, going forward and that uh, our idea of, of how courts deliver justice, what justice looks like, what it means, uh, is going to be radically different going forward. I, I think courts have been stuck in what is largely a, I don't know, 19th century right. uh, vision of, of, of what it is they're supposed to do. Uh, and again, Suskin can say this far better than I, than I do, but, but this is a, a system that's been created by lawyers for lawyers and it was never designed for consumers from the get-go. And, and going forward, uh, it's going to be a much more consumer-focused system, and it's going to have to be uh, if it's going to continue to fulfill uh, the, the important role it, it plays in our society. <clears throat> I think, you know, and I do think that I think law practice is going to be forever changed. I mean, I, I think this is a real opportunity, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm a great believer in, in the idea that out of adversity comes opportunity. Uh, and I, I can tell you, it, it just in my own career, I've had that happen any number of times where something, you, you know, something doesn't go the way you wanted it to go. And then you realize that maybe that was a good thing. It, it's right. a different direction. Uh, and I, I think right now lawyers have an opportunity to experiment. There are, there, there are no rules going forward right now. This is, you know, again, going to go back to new normal. Uh, it's, it, this, the normal hasn't been defined yet. This is all new. Uh, and uh, this is an opportunity for lawyers to try different things. It's an opportunity to even be, be a little dumb or act, you know, sh reveal that you're a little dumb about some things. You know, that, that, that uh, Zoom call I talked about where, you know, some of these lawyers had never been on Zoom before. Right. You know, they weren't making a secret of it. Uh, and uh, and they, they couple did some goofy things <laughs> on the call. <laughs> like the one who kept uh, sharing his screen repeatedly, not figuring out how he was doing it. Um, but, um, but now, now he knows. And the next time he's going to know how to use that. So um, I think, all of these things are going to make major structural changes. Exactly what those changes look like, I don't know. It's going to be less physical. You know, law practice is going to be less physical. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it goes without saying. I don't think we've once mentioned the cloud in this call. But, I mean, you know, something else that you and I have both talked about for years is the fact that the practice of law is moving to the cloud. Uh, and, uh, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I, I tend to uh, accept that as, as, as a given, as, a, as, a, as the state of affairs. And, and then I realize how many lawyers are still struggling with that concept. And right. so, uh, again, going forward, that's, that's no longer a, a, a point of discussion or concern. Going forward, uh, that is going to be the status quo. I, I, I think you made a really interesting observation there too. Maybe the opportunity for lawyers to be vulnerable about their technology know-how. And again, you know, asking for help 
yeah. out of necessity. Again, if I want my law firm to survive, I need to figure out Zoom. I need to figure out the cloud. I need to figure out how to collaborate with my clients over the internet. And there's lots of people willing to help um, and, and an opportunity maybe to get over that pride uh, and, and ego yeah. in some cases and, and just reach out and be vulnerable about the fact that you need help. And there are p- plenty of people, I think, that are willing to help. Yeah, we're all learning right now. We're all learning how to adjust to this situation. So one of the places you've uh, been, been writing over the last couple of years, Bob, is this, this evolving state of uh, ethics, opinions, and uh, state bar positions on technological competence and its, its role in, uh, in, that, in that particular state. You've been tracking which states look at technological competence as, as part of your professional obligations as a, as a lawyer. Um, and you'll be hosting a webinar just as a teaser uh, with, with Joshua Lennon, Cleo's lawyer in residence uh, in June on this very topic. And, and, and maybe to set the stage for that discussion, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the, um, number one, this, give us the 10,000 foot view of the evolving role of technological competence uh, in these, these state bar and, and even national level rules of professional conduct. And, and how do you see that evolving uh, due to the, the COVID-19 situation? Yeah, well, way back in uh, 2012, the American Bar Association uh, amended the rule uh, of uh, professional responsibility that governs, uh, uh, that pertains to the competence of a, of a lawyer to essentially say that, uh, you know, the obligation of a lawyer is not just to be competent in, in the law, in the practice of law, but also in the technology uh, that's relevant to that practice. Ironically, uh, wasn't that the 2020 vision uh, right. committee that's that right. Uh, that's, that's right now that, that, that came that. came up with that? that that's right. The uh, ABA Commission on Ethics 2020 had recommended that. Uh, I think their recommendation came out in like 2009 or something, and then it was adopted by the ABA. Some of them were adopted by the ABA in 2012. Uh, and um, you know, so uh, of course, uh, you know, in, in the United States. Uh, the, these, what the ABA does are model rules, and it doesn't apply until until the states uh, adopt them. Uh, but uh, we're I think we're up to 36, 38. I, I forget off the top of my head states that have now adopted that. Um, and um, you know th- what the what was put into the model rule is pretty vague, uh, and it doesn't give a lot of guidance. But I think we're beginning to uh, understand uh, that. Uh, what this means is that a lawyer really does have to have a, 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 a fair understanding of not just the technology that, that they use in, in their own practice, not just their, their billing software or, or, or uh, Clio or, or whatever else, but they need to have an understanding of the technology that their clients are using and how that might impact uh, the matter that you're handling for that client. Um, so, you know, this this really becomes critical right now uh, because um, as we are all adapting to uh, this current situation, we are all clients and lawyers beginning to use technologies that some of us are not used to. Uh, and that means there is a greater risk perhaps than ever of uh, uh, exposing uh, client confidences, expose, exposing client data, 
Um, and uh, so that places an obligation on lawyers to understand how to protect data and understand how data can be protected and what are the tools available and, and how can that be done? Uh, and, uh, you know, my, my feeling is in my, I, I still maintain that I'll, I'll, most lawyers do not get this at all, really don't have a good sense of how to protect uh, the client privileges when they're communicating with clients via data. Uh, back in the days when I used to go to conferences, uh, I don't do that anymore, but I used to go to conferences. Good old days. Good old days. And I, I would speak to groups of lawyers and I would almost always ask, you know, how many in this room know how to encrypt an email? And if four or five hands went up, that would be a good day. I mean, you know, lawyers one, one hand would be surprising okay. for one me. Hand, yeah. I, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> well, there's always one in every crowd. <laughs> and yet, it, you know, the one of the leading ABA, the leading ABA opinion to have addressed this issue essentially says that in most cases, lawyers should be considering the use of encryption. <clears throat> and that in in every case, a lawyer should be consulting with the client about how to protect communications, how to protect data, uh, and, uh, and, and what are the best ways to ensure that the data is secure. So, I mean, all of that is a long-winded way of saying this ethical duty is something that uh, I think a lot of lawyers don't understand the scope of, haven't really thought through, and probably aren't prepared for. And uh, the situation we're in right now uh, creates uh, a greater than ever danger that uh, there is going to be a breach uh, of that duty because there is going to be a breach, uh, a data breach of some kind um, because of a lawyer's ignorance about, about how to protect data. So uh, not, a, not good news, but, but I, I, you know, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the um, you've got your uh, support staff built, showing up there. Um, a different support staff than the last time I was on a video call with you, I think. Um, my son, Ian, making a yeah. guest appearance. <laughs> <laughs> um, I lost my train of thought, but you know, I, I made my point. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's a critical, well, I know what I wanted to say. Uh, you, you're is, commenting on the risk of data breaches. Yeah, right. I, I guess the other thing I want to say is just that there, if, if you look at some of the ethics opinions that have come out on this, and it was just one that just came out, I wrote about it on my blog just last week, a great one from, from Pennsylvania. Uh, addressing specifically written to address uh, ethics requirements in the age of uh, working from home. Um, they all talk about the fact that, you know, if you are not savvy about technology, if you don't have a high degree of competence in technology, it's okay to bring in help to hire a consultant or get, get right. somebody who can, you can consult with. Uh, but what these ethics opinions also all say is that you as the lawyer in the case never, uh, lose the responsibility, uh, the overall responsibility to manage that case and to manage the technological issues as well as the legal issues. And, and if you're a lawyer who doesn't have at least a basic understanding of, of data security and how that can be protected, then uh, even if you bring in an outside expert, you're not going to have the knowledge you need to manage that expert. Um, right. So I think this is a real opportunity. Again, this is a, once again, it's an opportunity for lawyers to really get up to speed on the communication technologies that they are using and how uh, how they uh, how they can be used in a way that best protects their clients. 
I, I think that I want to underscore the last point you made, Bob, because I think it's so important in, in the cases where so many firms are in this emergency, almost evacuation-like way, moving from on-premise and moving from bricks and mortar law offices to a fully distributed world and a cloud-based world, you're you're changing things so radically that you need to ensure that you're thinking about the data residency and data privacy um, in a really rigorous way and realize that the, the surface area for risk around your, your data is increasing when you're more than moving to the cloud, I would say moving to a distributed work from home environment, all of a sudden your, your endpoints are in a completely new environment and subject to a new set of risks. Right. I mean, the bottom line is that the, the ethical responsibilities around working from home are absolutely no different than the ethical responsibilities around working from an office. It doesn't, right. or, or, from, or from Starbucks or wherever else. Uh, so um, you just need to be aware of them and you need to be cognizant of them and how they apply to the environment you're working in and the environment your clients are working in. So, Bob, uh, I've, I've really enjoyed my conversation. My parting question for you is what your main message to others is uh, as legal professionals or as, as, as human beings that you'd like to, uh, to part with? Uh, well, uh, you know, my, my mother always used to say, and, and probably everybody's mother always used to say, this too shall pass. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I, I think that's a, a good thing to keep in mind. But I, I go back to what I said before, which is that out of adversity comes opportunity. I, I, that's been a real mantra in my own life. Um, and I think uh, we can all, uh, it's going to be a hard time for a lot of us. A lot of us are going to lose loved ones. Um, some of us are going to lose our jobs or lose our incomes. Uh, but I think uh, there are a lot of opportunities here uh, for those who look for them and uh, those who build around them. And uh, I think a lot of us, uh, and I think the profession overall is going to come out in a better place after this is over. Agree. I think there's uh a lot to be optimistic about, as, as you put it, the, the silver lining in all of this. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Really enjoyed being on this side of the microphone with you for once. You've got so much uh, perspective and wisdom to share. Really uh, appreciate you taking the time today. Yeah, you're a pretty good interviewer, Jack. You should, uh, <laughs> you should, do the, you should uh, give up your day job and just do this. <laughs> I am doing exactly that for an hour a day right now. Uh, <laughs> okay. And it, I've, I've actually really enjoyed it. Um, and, and once again, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Jack. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com. 